Let's begin our teaching this morning. We're going to be in the book of Corinthians, 1 Corinthians specifically, and we're going to look at chapter 3. Um, I titled this message, Diakonos, and Chris said, people are going to think I misspelled that word, Scott. They're not going to recognize it. I promise I'll get to it. He did spell it right. I just checked. So before we get to there, let me talk a little bit about 1 Corinthians 1 and 2. It's important to know those, and I've taught on those previously. They're on the website if you want to go back and listen to them. But it's important to know a little bit about Corinth as we go into this. See, Corinth was one of the great cities of the ancient world. It was a, a prosperous, busy, and growing city. It was very large. But it had a deserved reputation for the reckless pursuit of pleasure. Think of your big cities where people just pursue their own desires without really any, any inhibitions. Corinth had a rich ethnic mix. It was a center for sports, government, military, and business. It was a, a very populous and busy place. Uh, it was a major business city. It was located right between two major shipping ports. So uh, kind of think of the main highway coming through there. A lot of people passing through this city. However, the people of Corinth were known for partying, drunkenness, and loose sexual morals. Leon Morris described Corinth as intellectually alert, materially prosperous, but morally corrupt. Does that describe any places we know in our world today? David Guzik, in talking about Corinth, said that the church of God, he wanted to point out the contrast there. Think about the church of God, something really good, uh, you know, pure it should be, which is in Corinth, some place that was really bad, very morally bankrupt to a large degree. He continued, understanding the tension between the church and the city is important to understand in the letter of 1 Corinthians. The bottom line is this, according to Guzik, is the church influencing the city? Or is the city influencing the church? And I think that's just as valid a question for us today in the world that we live in. In the first chapter of Corinthians, um, Paul addresses, begins to address a few issues, but he talks about how much he loved the people of Corinth, and that's important for us to know. Despite all their issues, that I've just talked about some of them, morality problems, doctrine problems, church government problems, spiritual gift problems, church service problems, and authority problems, Paul called the Corinthians saints. That's the way he viewed them. Despite all of our shortcomings that each one of us had, myself included, God still looks at us as saints. We're a, we're a precious possession to him. Paul thanked God for the gifts among the Corinthians. Even though they were causing some trouble, he was still grateful for them. He recognized the gifts were not the problem, but it was the attitudes and the beliefs about the gifts that the Corinthians had that was causing the issues in their lives. And Paul pleaded with them, he said, I plead with you, brethren, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you all speak the same thing and that there be no divisions among you, but that you perfectly be perfectly joined together in the same mind and in the same judgment. And much of this letter to the Corinthians is going to keep coming back to that of being of the same mind, being of like mindedness, one body in Christ. When the church divides into different cliques, it weakens the church. Only when it's unified is the body of Christ powerful and strong. The Corinthians were saved through Christ's work on the cross, and they were baptized in the name of Jesus, yet they were dividing themselves to follow individual ministers, Paul, Peter, and Apollos. Paul also stated in chapter 1, For the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved it is the power of God. He spoke back to that power that the church itself had, that the church possesses, not the world, and it doesn't come from the world. This power belongs to the body of Christians, those of us that gather together and study the Word, 
that have a relationship with Jesus and seek to serve God with our lives. Salvation pivots on what an individual does with the message on the cross, the gospel of Christ or the good news as we refer to it. There's no wise man, no scribe, and no, deba no debater, the, the thinkers or philosopher of Paul's time that we still have today in, in various ways, who can do what Jesus Christ alone has done for each one of us. Only Jesus was able to pay that price that was required on the cross. To the unbeliever, sounds foolish. I mean, think about it. God's wisdom is not men's wisdom. But, but this, this picture of a person dying on the cross, being crucified, was a picture of humiliation and weakness. But for the Christian, that was the ultimate sacrifice. That revealed the power that Christ had to come back and raise from the dead after that humiliating death on the cross. It wasn't humiliation to him, it was sacrifice. There's no pride involved in it. It was his, his ultimate sacrifice for each one of us. Isaiah said, for my thoughts are not your, or recorded in Isaiah, God says, for my thoughts are not your thoughts, nor are your ways my ways, says the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. God's way is beyond even our imagination and our understanding. It's so much better. The Jewish world at that point in time, as Paul was writing this, were still looking for a sign. They were still looking for that sign of the coming Messiah, despite the fact that he was already there. The Greek culture, you know, it was so busy pursuing intellectual wisdom. They were trying to sit and contemplate or discuss things and just, just become more intelligent by sitting around thinking or talking or meditating. This message of the cross made no sense to either one of those groups. But when we recognize that everything we have of eternal value is based on Jesus, only then are we able to glorify God. Only then can we be lifted up by Him. Then in chapter 2 of 1 Corinthians, Paul talked about the fundamentals of the gospel. I'm just going to list them. I'm not going to go through them. You can go back and listen to that if you'd like. But there's some important fundamentals we have to think about before we go into chapter 3. The first is the gospel is centered on the death of Christ. Without the death of Christ, there on that cross, there is no gospel message. The good news can't come if he didn't go and die on that cross, sacrificing himself. Second is man's position. When I say man's position, again, think about the world as I spoke about before. What is our position as humans? It's actually a position of weakness. We are weak in the grand scheme of things. We really can't take care of ourselves. We couldn't provide for our own salvation. There was no way we needed a Savior. G. Campbell Morgan, in talking about Paul, Paul said that uh, I was with you in weakness, in fear, and in much trembling. G. Campbell Morgan commented, so great was his sense of weakness and fear and so profound his lack of trust in himself that Paul quaked and trembled. He says, those are the secrets of strength in all preaching. Being, recognizing your own weakness, recognizing even to the point of trembling your own weakness that you're so dependent on God in your preaching that the power comes from him. The third uh, fundamental that I say Paul covers here is his goal, which should also be our goal. He says that your faith, speaking to the Corinthians, that your faith should not be in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. That they put their faith 100% in God's work, not in men. Men make so many promises, and, and we know the lies and the deceit in a man's heart that the Bible talks about. Even man's best, best intentions fall long short of the glory of God and his ability. So we need to recognize that. Paul's goal was that our, our faith and the Corinthians' faith should be in, not in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. Fourth, the gospel is part of God's eternal plan. 
there is an eternal plan. That's the first thing to keep in mind. God has an eternal plan. It's often difficult for us to think past the, the next couple of days or the end of the month sometimes as far as we can plan. But God had all this planned out thousands and thousands of years ago. He knows what's going to happen. He knew where each one of us would be today. He knows what lies in store for each one of us. In the gospel, it's all part of God's eternal plan. It wasn't a bailout because things didn't go the way he originally planned. It was part of the original plan. And there's peace and comfort that we can take in that. And the fifth principle that Paul lays out in the second chapter of 1 Corinthians is our salvation is the work of God. That includes the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. You know, only the Holy Spirit can teach us about God and His wisdom. And then Paul talks a little bit about the ministry of the Spirit, which includes the Spirit teaches us, first of all. The second is the indwelling of the Holy Spirit that Paul talks about. Third is the Holy Spirit teaches. You know, without Him, before every service, we pray that the Holy Spirit would teach us from God's Word. We need Him to teach us and reveal the truths in the Scripture to us. Because again, we don't have understanding. Man's understanding is totally different than God's. We need His Spirit to explain those truths to us or we can't understand them. And the fourth Paul talks about is the Spirit discerns. He says, The natural man does not receive the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness to him. For he cannot know them because they are spiritually discerned. We need the Spirit to discern these things to us, these truths that we need to come to understand. So with that recap of the first two chapters, let's begin to chapter 3, and we'll see where this word deaconeus comes from. So 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 1. And I, brethren, could not speak to you as to spiritual people, but as to carnal, as to babes in Christ. I fed you with milk and not with solid food, for until now you were not able to receive it. And even now you are still not able, for you are still carnal. For where there are envy, strife, and divisions among you, are you not carnal and behaving like mere men? For when one says, I am of Paul, and another, I am of Apollos, are you not carnal? So let's start out with that word carnal. That word carnal that Paul is using there, kind of repeated a few times, seems to be kind of the, the um, guilty word there, the way he uses it, comes from the word sarkikos which means flesh. It has the idea of signifying the nature of flesh or sensual, controlled by animal appetites, governed by human nature instead of by the Spirit of God. So we can see this idea of being carnal is actually the exact opposite of being godly-minded is the way we need to view that. Here in chapter 3, Paul begins to demonstrate the need for the Christians to grow in their faith. He tells the Corinthians that they are babes in Christ is what he calls us. The Corinthians, and I'm going to say us because we can act the same way as the Corinthians, whether we want to admit it or not. We can say that they were young Christians or new in their faith in some ways, or some of the terms we might use today. Paul's desire is to see them grow into mature Christians, which is the whole purpose in this letter, if, you, if you'll read it that way. His idea was not to beat the Corinthians up, even though he's going to deliver a number of rebukes. But the idea is he wants to see them grow. He, he's working to disciple them here and help them to grow. A Christian must learn how to dedicate their life to serving God's purpose instead of their own desires. That's the opposite of being carnal, is to put God's desires above our own. So Paul uses the analogy here of feeding milk to an infant as opposed to solid food that a child or an adult would eat. He's referring to the previous two chapters here. 
It's going where he laid out those detailed principles, I called them, of the Christian faith. That's why I went back and took the time to review chapter 2, those principles in the faith. Paul said, I just laid out these to you so that I can say, you're not following those. You're not getting these simple, basic things. You're not able to handle the important parts, the meatier part of the gospel. He tells them that they're not able to receive solid food as they're having trouble with the milk alone. The point that Paul's trying to make here is, is the Corinthians are not doing very well and living their lives according to the foundational principles of the Christian faith. They need to grow or mature in their faith. And to back up this statement, Paul asks the rhetorical question. For where there are envy, strife, and divisions among you, are you not carnal and behaving like mere men? See, Paul's telling us here that the envy, the strife, and the division are not characteristics that were demonstrated by Christ. Nowhere in Christ do we see that type of attitude, do we? There's no strife, there's no envy, there's no pride in Christ in the, in the life that He demonstrated to us. And therefore, they should not be part of our life as Christians. I mean, think about that. A Christian, one who looks like Christ, it doesn't have a place. It doesn't belong. These characteristics are actually contrary to the spirit-filled and spirit-led life of a Christian that Paul discussed in the previous chapter. The lives of the Christians should demonstrate the unity of a common goal and a common purpose. That's what Christ brought. Peter encourages this same type of unity in his letter in 1 Peter. He said, finally, all of you be of one mind, having compassion for one another. Love as brothers, be tenderhearted, be courteous, not returning evil for evil or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, blessing, knowing that you were called to this, that you may inherit a blessing. Peter says we were called to bless one another, that we may inherit a blessing ourselves. That question was kind of a generic one. In verse 4, Paul asks a little more personal question. He says, For when one says, I am of Paul, and another, I am of Apollos, are you not carnal? Paul is now speaking to a specific issue within the Corinthian body of believers. He's been dealing general up till now. Now he's going to start digging into these issues that he's had reported to him of the Corinthian church. And keep in mind, this is the church that Paul planted. He was a part of planting himself. Apollos, Peter, these are people he cares about. This type of division indicates an immature believer, or immature believers in this case, a whole body of them apparently. In chapter 2, Paul wrote, Now we have received not the Spirit of the world, but the Spirit who is from God, that we might know the things that have been freely given to us by God. A mature believer would understand that the faith of Christians is founded in a common Savior, a common God, and a common Spirit with each one of us that he referred to or we refer to as the Trinity. And that's why Paul took the time to talk about the ministry of the Holy Spirit in previous chapters. That that, that should bring people together, not cause them to start dividing themselves. But instead of recognizing that as bringing them together, the Corinthians weren't focused on the unity, the, the common point of salvation the common savior that they all had they were focusing on who delivered the message the, the focus was in the wrong place it was on the man not the savior by dividing themselves based on the man that God used to deliver the gospel message to them the Corinthians are demonstrating that they have not grasped the foundational principles very well Paul's trying to help them with this this type of division is representative of the carnal nature of the world it completely ignores the spiritual relationship that is the basis of the gospel. It's totally focused on the carnal part of it. 
Paul must address this lack of understanding before he can move on to more complex issues that the Corinthians will encounter in the faith. So he needs to turn their attention back to this. He's trying to pull their attention back to the Spirit, back to the Savior, the Christ, the one who provided their salvation. The lives of Christians often contradict what we profess to believe. We say one thing, but then the way we act demonstrates something else. This is the case with the Corinthians. When this happens, it typically indicates that we're not doing a very good job of applying these foundational principles to our lives. That we've somehow let them go, or we're ignoring them, or and sometimes it's just that they're not convenient for us. There's a simpler way to live our lives than to cling to these principles of the gospel. And as Paul points out, envy, strife, and division within the body of Christ are all very good indicators of Christians that are not mature in their faith. And how easy is it for us to let this slip into our lives, this envy, this strife, um, division amongst ourselves? We can divide over so many things when we look at the world. What should we be doing? Should we be looking at ways to divide ourselves? Or should we be looking for ways to come together? Scripturally, Jesus told us to focus on what's good, positive, and true. We need to be looking for the truth in the gospel and focus and rally around that. We should be looking at the truths that are in God's Word. We should be looking for ways to love one another. That's a core part of the gospel. I mean, the greatest sacrifice for man. God loved the world so much that He gave His only begotten Son, right? We should be focused on that love portion, the things that bring us together. Anything else is allowing the enemy to have footholds or even huge places to drive wedges within the body of Christ. As a Christian, we should always, always be able to find common ground to come together. There should never be a reason as Christians we can't find common ground, that we can't come together in one way or another. God always desires to teach us through the Holy Spirit and see us grow in our faith. And as I said, one, in, one indicator of division uh, that we're not doing very well, but one indicator of a mature Christian is their willingness to eva- evaluate their life based on the gospel principles. We can actually do the opposite, go out of our way to look at each one of those principles as we see in the gospel or any part of the Bible we're studying. Those same principles will come through over and over again. Look at those and be honest with yourself and say, how well am I doing here? Am I really doing good at this? How did I do last week? Pick a day. You know, pick, pick experiences, encounters you had and say, how well did I do it representing Jesus to this person who was standing in front of me? Or that I sent an email to or a text or whatever social media platform that you decide to use. There's ways we can do that that help us to grow. That's God's desire. Look for areas that don't align with the principles that have been laid out in the Word of God. Then, ask God to help us improve in those areas. When we see a weakness, that's not a place to let the enemy in and beat us up. That's a place to say, okay, God, you've shown me this. Now what are we going to do about it? How am I going to do better tomorrow or next week? Or even right now, do I need to call or text? I'm not a fan of the texting. I like one-on-one communication. Most of you know that I don't like social media and I don't do group texts. But uh, one-on-one communication, I think it's so much more important that we can correct things through that. If we've done something we realize is wrong, we can apologize for it. If we've let a wedge come between us and somebody, find a way to um, invite them to coffee or dinner or lunch or something. Find some way to mend anywhere that you've seen that you've allowed a divide to occur that shouldn't have occurred. Romans 8, 5 says, For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh. But those who live according to the Spirit, the things of the Spirit. We, we have to make a conscious effort to set our mind to the things of the Word of God. Not of our flesh, 
but of the Word of God. What does God say in His Word? We have to, to strive to live by those directions. We have to strive to find those ways that we've allowed our flesh to enter and, and counteract that. We have to ask God for help to, to not allow our flesh to guide and direct our lives. So we talked about this division that Paul brought up. Verse 5, Paul asked the question, Who is Paul, who is Apollos, but ministers, through whom you believed, as the Lord gave to each one? So there's quite a bit in this one. So first of all, who was Paul? Who was Apollos? He asked that question. The Corinthians probably would have known, but we may not know that as well. So Apollos, who was Apollos? If we go back to Acts chapter 18, verses 24 through 28. It says, Now a certain Jew named Apollos, born at Alexandria, an eloquent man and mighty in the Scriptures, came to Ephesus. This man had been instructed in the way of the Lord, and being fervent in spirit, notice being driven by the Spirit here, he spoke and taught accurately the things of the Lord, though he knew only the baptism of John. So he began to speak boldly in the synagogue. When Aquila and Priscilla heard him, they took him aside and explained to him the way of the God more accurately. And when he described, and when he desired to cross to Achaia, the brethren wrote, exhorting the disciples to receive him. And when he arrived, he greatly helped those who had believed through grace, for he vigorously refuted the Jews publicly, showing from the scriptures that Jesus is the Christ. So we see here that Paul, I'm sorry, Apollos, heard the gospel. He was filled with the Spirit, and he began teaching. He began traveling. Not only was he willing to teach, he was willing to be taught. As he encountered other people, he, he was able to take that, not correction, but in this case, additional teaching. He was able to be discipled. He was willing to learn more. He was willing to sit at the feet of other teachers as he taught himself. So we see as a Christian, he was willing to grow. He wanted to do a better job. This is a person who was focused on doing the work of God. He was a Jewish man that believed Jesus was the Son of God. With really only a basic understanding of the gospel, according to what we read, he took off the, he, he's out sharing the gospel with people in the synagogues. He's clearly being used by God to lead people to Christ, that they may receive salvation. Now, Paul, we know a lot more about Paul, typically, just from our readings. But let's look at Acts chapter 9, verses 1 through 20. Saul, also known as Paul, Saul was seeking to kill the Christians. He was on his way to Damascus for this purpose when a light shined down on him from heaven. He fell to the ground. The Lord spoke to him and commanded him to go into the city where he would be told what to do. He recognized that it was the Lord speaking to him. He was blind and was led to the city where he waited for three days without eating or drinking. The Lord sent a disciple named Ananias to him. Ananias to him. Ananias went to him, laid hands on him. He immediately regained his sight, was filled with the Holy Spirit, and was baptized. He then received food, gained his strength, spent some days with the disciples, and immediately began to preach the gospel in the synagogues. He went from persecutor to a disciple in a matter of days. That's a paraphrase. I didn't read the scriptures exactly if you were trying to follow along. Um, 20 verses is a lot more I want to read right there. But you get the idea of, of what happened here in Paul's life. Paul was going along about a fleshly, we could say, led life, pursuing his own desires. They certainly weren't God's desires. He thought he was serving God, but he wasn't. He had been deceived. In trying to kill the Christians, he thought he was serving God. 
But once God brought him to his knees, brought him to that place where he had to recognize that what he was doing was working against God, and he surrendered to God, God was able to use him to truly serve himself, to truly serve the people that he encountered to that point. In both cases here, we see men that heard, were taught, were willing to learn, willing to, to admit that what they'd been doing was wrong and change their ways and grow. And God was able to use them. Just, we see them as biblical people, biblical characters, but they were just men walking the face of the earth like any one of us would. To the Corinthians, Paul identified himself and Apollos as, quote, ministers through whom you believed as the Lord gave to each one. Ministers through whom you believed, through, as the Lord gave to each one. This word minister, if we look that up, it comes from the Greek word diakonos. It's our title for this message. That's where we get our word deacon from. This word means diakonos or deacon means one who executes the commands of another, especially of a master, a servant, or attendant. It could be the servant of a king, it could be a, a one, one who by virtue of the office assigned to him by the church cares for the poor and has charge of and distributes the money collected for their use. Or it could be a waiter, one who serves food and drink. This is what Paul describes himself to the Corinthians as, himself and Paulus, a waiter or a servant or a messenger, one carrying out the duties or the commands of somebody else. This gospel message isn't his in the sense that he created it or that he's the power behind it. He's simply delivering the message of the cross to other people that they may experience his power and salvation. Paul and Apollos are servants of God. I could say simply servants of God. Neither of them have or could do anything to allow the Corinthians to be forgiven of their sins. There's nothing Paul or Apollos, either one or Peter, could have done to save these Corinthians. The only thing they can do is lead them to the gospel message that provides that for them. That message of eternal life. Jesus left heaven, came to earth to, to live in a fleshly body. He suffered. He was tempted. He ate and drank just like we eat and drink. Unlike us, he did not give in to temptation. That's the difference. Jesus never gave in to temptation. He lived a sinless life. Then he died on the cross to serve as a sacrifice for our sins. He paid the price that we could be forgiven and receive that salvation, live with God for, in heaven for eternity. Paul couldn't do that. Apollos couldn't do that. Peter, myself, no other pastor, nobody else can do that for you. Only, only Christ could do that. So Paul took it upon himself to become a messenger of this message, the message of somebody else's work. That's why he describes himself as a servant or a deacon, carrying out the work of another. Now to help the Corinthians and us better understand this idea of being a minister or a diaconos, servant, Paul continues on in verse 6 here in 1 Corinthians chapter 3. He says, I planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the increase. So he's trying to make it very clear here of who we turn to for the, the, the blessings that come. God gave the increase. In verse 7, he says, So neither then he who plants is anything, nor he who waters, but God who gives the increase. Now he who plants and he who waters are one, and each one will receive his own reward according to his own labor. For we are God's fellow workers. See the idea of unity here? Common goal, common purpose. 
We are God's fellow workers. You are God's field. You are God's building. So Paul uses the analogy of a field being planted to help explain this idea. So a person who owns the field in biblical times and today often hires workers to go into that field and do the work. Those people working in the field don't own it. They don't own the crop that comes out of it. They're simply workers. They're going in and laboring in that field. They may break the ground, plant the seeds, water the field, fertilize, remove the weeds, harvest the crops, even deliver them to the market. But when it comes time to collect the payment, they don't get paid for that crop that came in. They'll get paid. They'll get their wages. All of that belongs to the owner of the field. The land belongs to the owner of the field. But the word reward that Paul uses comes from the word, Greek word misthos, meaning dues paid for work. They will receive their reward. They will receive the dues for the work that they have done. The hired workers are paid for their labor. Jesus told us that he will bring a reward when he comes back that will be distributed. In Revelation 22, 11, and 12, a verse that you're probably familiar with, And behold, I am coming quickly, and my reward is with me, to give to every one according to his own work. That's the same word there, reward. He's coming with a reward for the work that you've done when he returns. It's important to understand here that each one of us is called to this role of minister or deacon, as it's used by Paul in this chapter. Chuck Smith used to say that every member of the church is a deacon by default. Every member of the church is a deacon by default. Well, think of today that title has to be bestowed upon you. But in biblical terms, if you're a part of the church, that, that's your role. You become a minister in carrying out the work of the gospel. We are to be teachers and doers of his word throughout the earth. In doing so, we become God's fellow workers in Paul's terms, working along, alongside one another for a common purpose of spreading the seed of the gospel and discipling those that choose to accept the salvation that's accepted. The earth, you think of it like a very large field. <laughs> a very large field. And God desires to grow something. What does He want to grow here on earth? Christians. God simply wants to grow Christians here on earth. A lot of the things that we worry about and we stress about and we think are priorities, not priorities in the realm of heaven. It won't mean a lot. You often hear the, the phrase that the streets of heaven are paved with gold. You know, the things that we value on earth are typically not valued in heaven. And conversely, a lot of the things on earth that are looked at as foolishness are valuable in heaven. Very valuable in heaven. God wants everyone to hear the gospel message and become a believer. He wants believers to grow. He wants them to study the word, fellowship with one another, gather together, be discipled, and to grow. Why? they can become stronger Christians, that they can have a closer relationship with Him in our life here, and that we may grow other Christians, that we may become disciplers of other Christians, that we may become seed that draws others to Him. As fellow workers, we should all be striving to represent God in our daily lives and tend to the fields that surround us. You know, recognize whatever part of the world you're placed in, that's your little part of the field. Are you carrying out your work in your little part of the field that He's placed you in? It's not that we generate the increase, for it's God that provides the increase. Our role is simply to represent Him. And that's where he was going with the Corinthians. He's trying to show them in this text that they're not doing a very good job of that in some ways. That the division, the envy, the strife. I actually had a co-worker one time tell me about a friend of hers that professed to be a Christian, 
but she described their family and her family, and her family, who would tell you they weren't Christians, looked much more like the biblical Christian description than the family she was describing. She said that there was no respect between the family members, the husband and the wife. The children didn't respect their parents. She said, the only thing I can tell that makes them a Christian is they go to church every Sunday. But yet her family was just the opposite. They didn't even profess to be Christians. There was respect within the family, between the husband and the wife, the children. I mean, she said, why would I? They keep telling me I need to go to church, but I don't know why. I don't want to be like them. That's what she described to me. That family wasn't doing a very good job of representing God to her. And it was actually pushing her away from church instead of to church. The picture that Paul paints, it's a picture of the body of mature believers, everyone striving together for a common purpose of spreading the gospel message. In Ephesians 4, 11 through 16, reads, And he himself, Jesus, gave some to be apostles, some prophets, some evangelists, and some pastors and teachers. Verse 12, for the equipping, or from the King James Version, it says the perfecting of the saints for the work of ministry, for the edifying of the body of Christ, till we all come to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to a perfect man, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, that we should no longer be children tossed to and fro and carried about with every wind of doctrine by the trickery of men and the cunning craftiness of deceitful plotting, but speaking the truth in love, may grow up in all things into him who is the head, Christ, from whom the whole body, joined and knitted together by what every joint supplies, according to the effective working by which every part does its share, causes growth of the body for the edifying of itself in love. Isn't that a beautiful picture? Isn't it like a beautiful, you can picture heaven, it'd be a lot like that, just everybody working together in this perfect harmony that's described here. How do we get to that? That's the first couple of verses there. It says, He Himself, God Himself, gave some to be apostles, prophets, and evangelists, and some pastors and teachers. Why? For the equipping or the perfecting of the saints for the work of the ministry. That phrase, work of the ministry, there, in the Greek, is diakonia. It goes back to our word diakonos. The diaconos is the deacon or the one carrying out the work of another. Here it's kind of, kind of more of a, a verb type sense. The meaning is service, ministering, especially of those who execute the commands of others. So the role of the pastors and the, the teachers and the evangelists is to equip other people, to teach other people how to go out and do this ministry. It's not that the people sitting in the, the pews at a church, you, have a the uh, a free ride and look at me and say that's your job pastor to go share the gospel it's, it's your role too you're just as responsible as i am to do that that's my role is to help train you and teach you and pastor kyle and pastor greg and bruce that's that's our roles is to teach you how to go out and do this we want to encourage you to do this this meeting together even the small groups meeting together and doing these things the men's breakfast the women's fellowships all these different activities are there to encourage you to build you up. Why? So that you can go out and do the work of the ministry. That you can go out and service, minister to those that you encounter on a daily basis. There's words tied back together. The diakonia, the idea of diakonia, goes right back to the actions of the diakonos. 
which is even Pastor Chuck said, is every person in the church. We're all called to carry out these roles. In verse 10, 1 Corinthians 3, Paul says, According to the grace of God, which was given to me as a wise master builder, I have laid the foundation, and another builds on it. But let each one take heed how he builds on it. For no other foundation can anyone lay than that which is laid, which is Christ Jesus. So Paul's using another analogy here to try to help the Corinthians understand how multiple people can come and continue this work. He describes a process of essentially creating a building, at least the foundation part of it. So Paul's came, Apollos has came, Peter has come to the Corinthians at different points in time. Well, why is that necessary? You've already shared the gospel with them. You know, they're, they're dividing themselves thinking, okay, I'm in line behind the person that shared with me. But Paul's trying to explain here, the foundation was Christ, not any one of us. All we're doing is coming along and trying to help you grow one after another. Paul comes and teaches and you grow a little more. Apollos comes and spends some time and you grow a little more. Peter comes and teaches and you grow a little more. You know, for me, this was very clear because on my very first missions trip, I saw this. The very first missions trip I ever went on, I saw multiple people had been there for years before me. There were a lot of people there who were saved, had already accepted the gospel, and were mature and, and sharing the gospel with others. Many people there I learned from, very strong in their faith. Then we'd encounter some very young Christians. Some of those I was able to minister to and, and help them understand things of the Bible better. I was able to teach them that they may grow, may understand. God used me as a minister in that way, as a, a deacon or a teacher. Then there are those that we encountered that didn't know Jesus. Uh, I was in a predominantly... Um, I was in Peru. I was in a nation that had a very different teaching, a different cultural mindset, especially in religion areas. Predominantly Catholic with different beliefs. And there were people there we were able to share the gospel with. Some couldn't accept it. Some, quite honestly, would accept, would recognize it and not accept it. And that's always a heartbreaking thing to me. To have a person understand what I'm telling them so much so that they're in tears but they're not able or not willing to accept it. And I've never quite understood that, but I've seen it a number of times. But when you see that picture in those places, when you go out into the world and begin ministering, sharing the gospel with others and teaching, you begin seeing that. And that's what Paul is trying to explain here with this, this foundation. But he needs the Corinthians to understand, and we need to understand, that as pastors, preachers, persons sharing the gospel, the ministers, anyone, we're, we're not the foundation. You can't build a church upon us. The faith is built on Jesus. You have to turn back to him. Jesus discussed a foundation in Luke chapter 6. He said, whoever comes to me and hears my sayings and does them, I will show you whom he is like. He is like a man building a house who dug deep and laid the foundation on the rock. And when the flood arose, the stream beat vehemently against that house and could not shake it, for it was founded on the rock. He goes on, but he who heard and did nothing is like a man who built a house on the earth without a foundation, against which the stream beat vehemently, and immediately it fell, and the ruin of that house was great. In a sense, the Corinthians were totally missing the foundation. They were starting with the discipleship part of what Paul and Apollos and Peter had been teaching them. They were forgetting the whole part of the work that Christ has done. And that's why Paul had to take them back to that to remind them of the foundation. So, especially in light of the last couple of years, when things get difficult or things get tough, I have to ask you, where, where have you turned? What's been your foundation? Have you turned back to Christ? Have you turned to worldly things for your security, you could say? You know, has that been your stability? Are there things on earth you're clinging to for stability? 
Are there people? You know, where have you turned for stability over especially the last two years? Where will you turn in the future? You, sh you can decide that now, and you should decide that now. You should decide no matter what happens, good or bad, you're going to cling to Christ. We can praise Him in the good times, but we can also praise Him in the difficult times because He is the, that steadfast rock that we have if we've built a foundation of a life on Him. He is the one that never fails or wavers regardless of the situation or circumstance. He is the foundation that a, a fulfilled life here on earth is built on. In Mark 10, 45, it says, Therefore thus says the Lord of God, Behold, I lay in Zion a stone for a foundation, a tried stone, a precious cornerstone, a sure foundation. Whoever believes will not act hastily. Why is that important to not act hastily? Because even as we read back in Hebrews, we don't want to be blown about. Turn it to every doctrine that comes about. We want to be solid and steady. We should not act hastily as Christians. We should be founded on a, a solid foundation. The reality is we can experience peace, comfort, and stability, both here and in eternity, when our life's built on Christ. Continuing on in verse 12. Now, if anyone builds on this foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, straw, each one's work will become clear, for the day will declare it because it will be revealed by fire, and fire will test each one's work of what sort it is. So Jesus described the use of fire to destroy these things that were, th those things that were detestable in the parable of the wheat and the tares. In Matthew 13, verses 40 through 43, he said, Therefore, as the tares are gathered and burned in the fire, so it will be at the end of this age. The Son of Man will send out his angels, and they will gather out of his kingdom all things that are offered. That, I'm sorry, that offend. He will gather out of his kingdom all things that offend. And those who practice lawlessness and will cast them into the furnace of fire, they will be wailing and gnashing of teeth. Then the righteousness will shine forth as the sun in the kingdom of their father. See, only the works that are performed that honor Jesus, that, that glorify God, will last in eternity. Anything else that we do here on earth really is killing time or we could say even wasting time in certain cases. How much of our life have we spent on things that just don't have an eternal value that, that we could have invested in things of more importance? And, and we could go into whole teachings on that. There's a lot we can go into with that. But the main thing I want to point out here for the purpose of today is everything we do, the time will come and it'll be determined. Some things won't last. Some of the things we did on earth have no eternal value. We, we won't be rewarded in heaven. We'll, we'll be looking back, possibly saying, man, could have better invested that time. And we should be looking ahead with that mindset. We should be looking ahead saying, am I getting ready to do things that glorify God? Or do these have eternal value? Or are these things that just don't matter? Verse 14, if anyone's work which he has built on it endures, he will receive a reward. If anyone's work is burned, he will suffer loss, but he himself will be saved, yet so as through fire. So again, we should be serving the Lord by studying his word and teaching others about him and about his kingdom. We should be helping others to grow. We should be helping other Christians to grow. 
If this is the case, then we will have surrounded ourselves with materials that will withstand the fire of judgment. That's what we want to do now. We want to make these decisions. Are we investing in others? Are we investing in our own lives, our family, strangers, co-workers, those around us? On the other hand, believers who have spent their life pursuing things that do not serve to grow the kingdom of Christ will have surrounded themselves with the materials that will be consumed by the fire of judgment. Our time should be spent seeking God's will for our lives. We should ask Him how we should serve Him. We should share the gospel with others that we meet, and we should be encouraging one another to grow in their faith. I think oftentimes we think, well, I don't know if I can lead anyone to the Lord, so I can't do ministry. But the truth is we can all encourage one another in truth. We can all encourage one another in love. Sometimes it's just a, a smile and an uplifting word that people need to hear when they're down. When you talk to a person who's not having a good day, just, just smile at them even if you're face to face or say something positive. That may be all it takes to turn their day around. Give them hope. If a person's down and you recognize that, give them some sort of hope. Put something positive, speak some positive words into their life. You don't have to pull out your Bible and start reading in, in you know, the first chapter, verse one, and, and go all the way to the end. But as a Christian, you, you have hope in your life. They may not have that. They may just simply need encouragement in some way. Verse 16 says, Do you not know that you are the temple of God, that the Spirit of God dwells in you? If anyone defiles the temple of God, God will destroy him. For the temple of God is holy, which temple you are. That word temple comes from the Greek word naos. It's used of the temple at Jerusalem, but only of the sacred sanctuary itself, consistent of the holy place and holy of holies. So Paul's telling you here that you're equated, you, your body, who you are, is equated to that holy of holies, the place that only the high priest could go once a year. There's two passages we find in 1 Kings that discuss God living in that holy temple, the same one that, that Paul describes us as here. First Kings 6, 12-13 says, Concerning this temple which you are building, if you walk in my statutes, execute my judgments, keep all my commandments and walk in them, then I will perform my word with you, which I spoke to your father David, and I will dwell among the children of Israel and will not forsake my people of Israel. The second one is in First Kings 8, 10 and 11. It says, And it came to pass when the priest came out of the holy place that the cloud filled the house of the Lord so that the priest could not continue ministering because of the cloud. For the glory of the Lord filled the house of the Lord. And Paul's telling us that our bodies are equated to that. that God so wants to fill us with His Holy Spirit that it's so noticeable to everybody around us. Nobody could even miss it. That He wants to do a work with us. The Holy Spirit lives within us. Through the Holy Spirit, God directs our lives. We serve God through the direction of the Holy Spirit. It's, it's, what makes it the hardest is that we try to run our own lives, I think, oftentimes. We don't let God do the work. We think we have to do it, and we tend to get in the way. Like the little three-year-old who's trying to help Dad work on the chore around the house, whatever it is. He's just getting in the way as much as he wants to help. We get in God's way too many times by thinking that we have to, to do the work ourselves. Paul later tells us in Galatians, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. 
We need to, well, he's trying to tell us here, we need to let God live through us. We just become the minister, the deliverer of the news, the, the channel through which God works. Paul gave a strong warning to anyone who would misguide those who belongs to God. You know, that word defile that he used is, I can't even pronounce this word, flero. It's not right, I'm sure. But it means to lead away a Christian church from the state of knowledge and holiness in which it ought to abide. To lead away a Christian church from the knowledge and holiness in which it ought to abide. See, the enemy wants to lead us away from God. Why? He doesn't want us acting the way I've described to you today. He does not want us living a life the way Paul is laying out to us with these principles that are based on serving God and not our own flesh. The enemy absolutely hates that. There's a reason that the devil and the demons are referred to as deceiving spirits. Now the Spirit expressly says that in latter times some will depart from the faith, giving heed to deceiving spirits and doctrines of demons from 1 Timothy 4.1. Some will be deceived. Some will align themselves with our enemy. It's going to happen. In Revelation, we are told of what God has in store for the enemy, though. Revelation 20.10 says, The devil who deceived them was cast into the lake of fire and brimstone, where the beast and the false prophet are, and they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. So we need to recognize there is an enemy out there. There's a very real enemy that wants to deceive us. His judgment's coming. It's already written. It's in the Word. It's determined. But in verse 18, Paul says, Let no one deceive himself. If anyone among you seems to be wise in this age, let him become a fool that he may become wise. For the wisdom of this world is foolishness with God. For it is written, He catches the wise in their own craftiness. And again, the Lord knows the thoughts of the wise, that they are futile. Therefore, let no one boast in men. For all things are yours, whether Paul or Apollos or Cephas, or the world or life or death, or things present or things to come, all are yours. And you are Christ's, and Christ is God's. God questions our understanding in Job 38, chapter 4. I love that portion of Job. Most people probably don't read Job too often. It's not a lot of positive, good stuff in there, but I think this one really helps us get a perspective. Job 38, 4 says, Where were you when I laid the foundations of the earth? Tell me if you have understanding. That's just, he has so many questions in several chapters there in that part of Job that just really... Help keep me humble. I don't know about you, but I, I don't know where I was when God created the foundations of the earth. I'm not sure I can define them to you nowadays, much less then. We don't have that understanding. God does. You know, we weren't here when God laid the foundations of the earth. We weren't here when the land and the sea were created. We weren't here when the first beams of light shone on the earth. Not only were I, was I not here, you weren't here either. No man was here at that point in time. God hadn't even created us yet. God was creating the foundations of the earth. We weren't here to even witness that. No man was. We came later. Proverbs 9.10 says, The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. I've often thought about that verse. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Just the beginning. It's not wisdom itself. It's just the beginning of wisdom. And the knowledge of the Holy One is understanding. 
just knowing, just coming to a fear of the Lord, a, a, a revering respect of the Lord, is just the beginning of wisdom. Why is that? Because we put Him in His place when we come to that point of understanding in our own minds. Once we recognize who God is, that He is the creator of everything, that He is the one that created us and He has a purpose for our lives, and that He loves us so much that He sacrificed His own Son, once we accept all of that, only then can we really, really begin to grow wise. Can we really understand what's going on in our lives, in the world around us, in the work that He's trying to do? We have to put God in His place first, at the very top. The moment that we think we understand something and become wise, we stop seeking wisdom. <laughs> we've got everything backwards. The minute that we think we fully understand, we've stopped looking. We, we've put our eyes on ourselves and taken them off the Lord at that very moment. Wisdom doesn't come from following men. Men are used by God to plant the seeds. He has the wisdom. He has the plan. We're just workers that water, plant, as Paul described. We build upon that foundation that Christ has already placed before us. Everyone's salvation, every person that gained salvation heard the message of the gospel, but it all had to go back to the work that Christ did. Hundreds of thousands of people, if not, I don't even know the number, billions or trillions have shared the gospel at some point in time. But if they've shared the gospel message, it all had what in common? Death, burial, resurrection of one, Jesus. All goes back to that. Salvation didn't come from man. It wasn't man's plan. God, man had no hand in it. Only God. The glory does not belong to men. It only belongs to God. One of the thoughts, one of the ideas that was understood back in biblical times was that when a meal was shared by a group of people, they partook of that same food and consumed it and divided it amongst the plates that they all became one. If you're, if you're sharing from the same um, piece of bread, for example, you're eating off of that bread and it's going to all of your bodies, your bodies are all made of that same food source now. And you were connected by this. And if you think back to the Jewish people with the dietary law and all the restrictions and uh, kosher diets today, there's much of that same mindset. And that's why they often criticize Jesus for eating with the sinners and tax collectors, right? How could you eat with them? It wasn't about the idea of associating. It's not that you can't be in the same room with them. It was the idea of you're sitting down at a table. You're partaking of the same food. Your bodies are now being joined together by consuming that same food. And as we have the communion today that we partake of, that's part of the idea in communion, that, that we're all partaking of the, the wine and the bread. And it's not the, the physical food that we're taking that links us together, but it's the idea of what that reminds us of. It's the idea of that, that wine, the juice, reminds us of the blood of Christ that he shed on that cross. It's the bread representing the broken body of Christ that went on that cross, not for his own benefit, for his own pain and suffering, but for our benefit and our salvation. That foundation that, that Paul has wrote about and I've talked about today. It's that reminder of that. So as we're going to have communion this morning, uh, Kyle, if you want to come back up, the worship team, Darren, if you want to come up and spread out the elements for us. Let me read from Luke chapter 22. When the hour had come, Jesus sat down and the twelve apostles with him. 
Then he said to them, think about this as I just described, how I just described the meal and how the Jewish people would, would view it. Jesus said, with fervent desire, I have desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I say to you, I will no longer eat of it until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. Why was Jesus looking forward to this meal with fervent desire? This is a meal where he's going to have with the disciples and he's going to give them communion. He's going to explain it to them of what's coming. He's going to talk about the new covenant. Then he took the cup and gave thanks and said, Take this and divide it among yourselves. For I say to you, I will not drink of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. And he took the bread, gave thanks, and broke it. And gave it to them, saying, This is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. So this is given for you. Not for, my, not for his benefit, but he's given it for our benefit. Likewise, he also took the cup after supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood, which is shed for you. His blood was sacrificed for us. And when we look at communion, we should view it from that perspective. That this was a sign of unity also. He was desiring to have this with his disciples because this was the final time together. Here, them ministering together and working together, but it was them all coming together. They were the seed to the church that he had invested in for years now. He'd been teaching them and preaching to them and, and raising them up to raise up other disciples to go out into the earth so that once he was crucified, they could go on teaching what had just happened. They could teach upon that crucifixion who Jesus was. They could share that foundation with so many others. It wasn't about them. It was all about him. But he looked toward that, towards that meal with a fervent desire in his own words. So should we look at the, the communion should look at it as that knowing what he's done for us in the past, but also knowing that we have what ahead of us. We have an eternity together as the body of Christ at the feet of Jesus. There before the cross, the great throne, where he sits at the right hand of his Father, where he finished interceding for us, or he continues to intercede today, but he finished with his sacrifice here, became that sacrificial lamb here. He took his seat there and is able to look forward again to what? When he sits down with us as his bride. As he looks forward to us as his bride. To have that marriage supper that's described in Revelation. So this communion is, is pointing us back. But it also points us ahead to, to think about what's coming. So as the worship team sings this song. If you would come up. We're going to have self-serve today. Come up and get your communion. Um, elements, take them back to your seat. We'll partake together. Lord, we thank you for the foundation that you laid, Lord, that you became. That as you sacrificed your own son, Lord, to pay the price for our sins. Lord, we thank you for all that you did. But Lord, we also want to look ahead, Lord. We want to look ahead to eternal life that you've promised that you purchased for each one of us Lord as you describe here that you look ahead and that you'll not partake of the communion again till that day in heaven Lord may we look ahead with a, an anxious desire Lord for that day as well and Lord as we look ahead may we gather those around us Lord 
we may, may we be an example to others of the hope, the peace, the blessings that you've bestowed upon us, Lord. May others see you in us. May they see the work that you've done through our lives in a way that gives them hope, that gives them promise, Lord. And more importantly, a desire, Lord, for that same relationship with you, Lord. As we take these elements, Lord, we're reminded of what you've done, Lord, and what lies ahead as a result, the blessings that come from that, Lord. Let's partake. Thank you, Lord, for that sacrifice that allows us to gather here today, Lord, and point to you. Maybe you may you be glorified in all that we do. May you be glorified through our words. May you be glorified through our actions, Lord. Use us as those ministers that Paul has talked about, Lord. Teaching others, sharing the gospel, discipling others, Lord, that they may come to a knowledge of you and live a full, blessed life, Lord. We pray this in Jesus' name.